The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today we're going to be speaking about how children and adolescents grow and heal in groups. And our guests are Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson. They're the editors of a new and acclaimed comprehensive book, The Handbook of Child and Adolescent Group Therapy, a practitioner's handbook. We're going to be asking them what we can take for parents as well as professionals from this new book. We're going to ask, why do all children benefit from group in their development, whether they're early preschoolers or teens? And then we're going to talk about children who suffer, children who may have experienced trauma, who struggle with anxiety, depression, perhaps they've been teased or bullied. How is group a therapeutic opportunity for them? Dr. Craig Han is a therapist, a fellow of the American Group Psychological Association. He's graduate adjunct faculty at NYU here in New York and Lesley University. His other books include Engaging Boys in Treatment, and Craig was on an earlier show with me on the Casozo channel talking about that very important book. His other book is Clinical Applications of Drama Therapy in Child and Adolescent Treatment. Dr. Seth Aronson is a psychologist, also a fellow at the American Group Psychological Association. He's a training and supervising analyst and director of training at the William Allison White Institute in New York, where he teaches and supervises in the Child and Adolescent Psychotherapy Training Program. His other book is The Group Treatment of Adolescents in Context, Outpatient, Inpatient, and School. We are with real experts, Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure uh, to be back. Thanks so much. Okay. Let's start with the overall question. Why do children and adolescents need groups to grow physically and psychologically? You know, I think um, there are probably a lot of reasons we could speak to around this, but one of them I would point to, and, and I think a lot of uh, parents and educators and people who have young people in their lives will relate to, is 
that the myth of uniqueness is really strong with young people. Um, David Elkind, who was a child psychologist, identified two concepts in the 1960s about adolescence that I think really resonate. One is the idea of the imagined audience, which is the belief that teens can have that they're constantly on stage, continually being watched by other people. Mm-hmm. And more important was what he called the personal fable, which is the tendency for adolescents to think their emotions are impossible for others to understand because they're so unique. I love the concept of um, adolescents not believing anyone could relate to them or their feelings and how unique they feel. Yeah, so a lot of the kids that I see will come in and say things like, I'm the only one who's ever been in love like this, or indeed, I'm (laughs) the only one who has these fears or whose family makes them feel this way. And so when they come to group, they come to see that not only are these feelings universal, but that because others are expressing them, they can both feel not so alone, but they can also gain some perspective by seeing the feelings outside of themselves. So by seeing other kids talk about these same things that they experience, they get a little distance from it, and they can perhaps gain some insight into what they're going through. Yeah, another thing that I guess I would add to that is that if you think about children and adolescents and their lives, their lives are really made up of being in a network of groupings. I mean, at one point I taught um, middle school teachers, and the idea of the classroom being a group was something that they hadn't really thought about. But, of course, Mm. any classroom is a group. If you go to any school, recess, look at a playground, um, think about all kinds of activities that kids are involved in, whether it's sports activities, religious youth groups, any kinds of uh, chess teams. There are, there are lots of group opportunities for them, so it's kind of a very natural setting for them, and it makes sense to use that to really harness that power you know, for, for their benefit. And I've observed uh, little ones just wanting to be near other little ones and modeling what they're doing. And as we know, they may not even be speaking much, but they like that community around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think one of the one of the things we get from group is exactly that it's maximizing the power of that community. So, you know, something that an adult might say to them individually, or something their parents might have said to them um, hundreds of times that doesn't quite stick, has tremendous value when one of their peers can say it to them. Mm-hmm. Mm. So now what happens, let's look, use these examples, if I'm a parent and I know my teen is extremely shy and I keep asking him, so who would you speak to today and there's no answer, or I have a little one in a classroom, Seth, who really keeps to himself, he hates recess because that means he has to go out and be with the group. How do these children grow and should I be concerned if I'm a parent? Well, um, you know, we, we, kid, we want kids to be in some kind of group life. And, you know, as you were just asking that question, my mind went to an 11-year-old boy that I work with right now who's, um, who is one of those sort of quieter kids and doesn't like big groups and noise. And, um, and he was saying to me, you know, on the, you know, he said during recess, well, there's the boys' group. He's in middle school. So there's the boys' group, there's the girls' group, and then there's kind of a mixed group. But I don't fit into any of those groups. And so he and I were talking about, well, what in, he has a lot of interests. He's a smart and interesting kid. 
So what interest does he have, and can he share even with one or two other kids, because that's a group by itself. You can have a group of two or even three. Can he share those interests with another kid? So he doesn't have to participate in a loud, but he's not going to be on a soccer team, or he doesn't have to be in a loud, boisterous group. But there are opportunities, as Craig was saying, just to get that feedback from one or two other kids because, you know, the other thing that we know is that, you know, children's uh, adult selves are formed in relation with other people. So we do. We need other people. We need to be in contact, even if it's one or two. It doesn't have to be a huge group or even a group of 10 to 12 kids, but to find that small group where you have a commonality and an interest and you can get that kind of feedback, and it does enhance you know, the development of the self. I love the idea of reminding all of us that it could take one or two other um, school-age friends or little ones or two other teens playing the same video game to make one feel they belong. It sort of normalizes the thing they love and the thing they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so should and parents I think act... Too, I, would, ahead, I, would add, I would add to that, I think it's important for parents to understand that just like some adults are, are very content with one or two close friends and really having a small group of, of intimate um, people that they're intimate with and share with, kids can be the same way. So some of the kids really thrive being part of big groups, and other kids are really quite happy if they have one or two close friends or close relationships to turn to. I have a lot of parents in my practice who often worry when they have a child yes. who's a little shyer, um, you know, that, that they don't have enough friends. And I think, really, we have to begin to think about um, how many is enough for this particular child. I, I love that you're saying this because in terms of temperaments and personalities, you don't want, I mean, you don't want a person to think something must be wrong with me because I like Mac, but I don't want to be with the whole crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm glad you're normalizing that in terms of who your child happens to be. Yes. I mean, one of the questions I ask kids is, you know, how happy, how content are you with the number and kinds of friendships that you have now? And often they can tell you, well, I'd like to have one or two more friends, or I'd like to be a little closer to the friends I have. But sometimes they will tell you, I'm really quite pleased with, with my friends right now. And what kind of guidelines could we give parents, um, Seth and Craig, in terms of what are the kind of suggestions? I mean, school-age children are still willing to take suggestions. I won't say that's the same with teens. Um, What kind of suggestions about reaching out to friends to make new friends? So parents can certainly, um, I, I know of some of the parents I work with, um, they can use some suggestions as to how to structure a play date. So let's say, you know, you have a kid who's quieter or more shy and doesn't do as well in, you know, sort of larger groups. So find that child in the class or even outside of school with whom your child has a commonality. Maybe they like Minecraft, you know, maybe it's right. chess, whatever it is, and then set up a play date. Or, and maybe even include a second child. It could be with three. Um, because the other thing that happens a lot in terms of the, the group dynamics and thinking about activities is that there are shifts. I mean, I, I'm thinking about, you know, there's, there might be one uh, boy who, let's say, has as a commonality 
chess with two other kids, but then those two other friends really like baseball, and my patient doesn't like baseball. So right. he wouldn't be part of that group, but he might find some other group that he's a part of, let's say he likes cooking or something like that. So we'll find Great. another small group for that. But to help parents understand what are your child's strengths, what are, the, what are the interests, and to really try then to help structure either play dates or smaller group activities, one-to-ones that are going to maximize the child's potential to make new friends and, and widen the circle somewhat. Some of the older kids I see, I think, you know, it's particularly difficult navigating the nuances of how to turn a school friend into a friend outside of school. You know, just the how do you how do you make invitations when you're slightly too old for your parents to do that for you? And I think that can be really confusing, particularly for the boys I see. Part of what's confusing is everyone's so busy and so overscheduled that a lot of the kids I see will rightly say to me, um, gosh, they're all so busy that no one has any time to get together. But I think understanding, you know, what does it mean when you send a text in inviting a group of people and not everyone responds? Does that mean that they don't welcome another invitation or does that mean they're just boys who are of the moment and who are engaged in something else and don't think to respond? And so I think sometimes kids need some coaching around some of those sensitive areas. And for older kids, I, I have often advised parents that what can be helpful to their child when they're too old for them to go ahead and make the invitation is to do something like, hey, we're going to this event on Saturday and we've got an extra ticket. Why don't you see if one of your friends wants to come? And so nice. there's sort of this scaffolding, but there's also something interesting that the child can approach someone else with. It's not just, hey, do you want to hang out? But do you want to come see this or do you want to come do this? And in that way, I think parents can kind of, you know, set up a, a safe way for their kids to have a little bit of a gentle push to go engage. It's wonderful. It's also the beginning of a learning curve for how do you ask someone out on a date? It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's really good because parents don't know what to do. And it's exactly what kids say. Everybody's plays soccer. So who am I supposed to call? Mm-hmm. Really right. good question. So when should a parent worry? When is it beyond um, they just don't like what he does or um, there's all girls in the class and two boys? When should a parent worry? Is it when the child is very withdrawn? Is it when the child's very aggressive? What have you both seen and what would you suggest is a, is a worry flag? Well, so if we're thinking about groups um, in particular, so it's I, then I, I would say we can talk about aggression uh, later, but I would say a child who really doesn't have any points of contact with another, with anybody else in the in the classroom, outside the classroom, the child who's very withdrawn, who goes home right from school, says, you know, I I don't want to go to a coding class, I don't want to take karate. Um, I just want to basically be home by myself because mm-hmm. we do know that the import, there, there is a, a real significance to being involved with other people. It, it enhances our sense of self. It helps us develop relationally. So I would say the child who's just withdrawn and has no contact with anybody else, yeah, that, that's something to, to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for the child who's aggressive... Would you say that boys will be boys or girls are always teasing each other? What's the point at which a parent should start to worry? Well, I think think that... 
I, I think that, you know, first of all, one of the worries I often hear is, you know, when uh, a child has tried out a number of friendships and they haven't quite stuck. And I would say that that is a natural process, right? We as adults do that. We, we you know, spend time with someone as a way of gauging whether we'd like to spend more time with them. But, you know, I would, I would attend to and listen for... Um, a sense that a child has a reputation, right? That they are getting a reputation for being a certain way. And that reputation may or may not be fair. Um, but often those things can kind of take hold, especially in smaller schools. And they're hard for a child to find their way out of. And in a certain way, some of the aggressive kids I see, they've become that kid, you know, okay. that kid who ever gets angry. And so, there's a way in which the group environment, the social environment of school can begin to reinforce that. So I'm working with okay. a boy right now. Wait, wait, hang on, school. hang on. Um, we're going to need to take a break, and this is such an important topic, so we're going to come right back to it. So we, you've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we'll be right back. We've been speaking with Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson, their new book, The Handbook of Child and Adolescent Group Therapy. We're talking about when does a child need some help and when could group be a good option for them. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Why do some people seemingly make the same mistakes when it comes to love and relationships? What is the best way to find love? Make a visit each week to Destination Love. Host Shelley Pumphrey will bring what you need to know to find love. No, it's not about the next fad, dating site tips, scoring the first date, or looking your best. Rather, it's empowerment, knowing that your authentic self works best and the science behind finding love. Destination Love is live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on Voice America Variety. Where can you learn about EasyWayPromotions.com's social media marketing, brand positioning, and more? Easy Talk Live. Where can you get tuned into celebrities in the business world? Easy Talk Live. Where can you learn about entrepreneurment? Easy Talk Live. Every week, host Eric E.Z. Zuli and his celebrity friends talk about global causes, offer tips and tricks that you can use right now on social media, and give you the chance to promote your projects on Easy Talk Live. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We have a great show going. We're speaking with Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson. We're talking about children and adolescents, their growth in groups, and the possibility of using group therapy of some form if a parent starts to worry that their child may need some help. And we were just talking about what are some of the red flags. The one that we just mentioned was when your child's aggressive behavior is causing them to have somewhat of a reputation in a school, in a class, on a team. So what would a parent do at that point? So I'm, I'm working with a boy who's in middle school right now, and he's part of a small school, and he's been in his school community for a number of years with virtually the same group of kids. And his reputation is really one of, of easily um, becoming angry and aggressive. And I think what's evolved for this boy is um, that other kids in the group environment, they're really what we call gaslighting him. So they do things, they say things purposely to set him off because they know mm. that they will get a big reaction from this boy. And I think part of what has really been helpful for him in terms of having a group to attend and, and also having other communities outside of school is that he, uh, both in his group and in some of the team sports he participates in, those become the avenues where he begins to build a different sense of himself, where those triggers that happen in school happen in a slightly more forgiving environment where things can be slowed down, where he can be coached, and he can respond in a different way. And so, you know, responding in a different way outside of school has just really started to bear fruit in terms of him beginning to feel like he can shift things behaviorally in school. So now when somebody tries to gaslight him, he's able to walk away from that. He feels a tremendous amount of power from doing that, whereas previously he had felt quite hopeless. Like, this is my reputation. What can I do about it? Everybody knows me as this. You know, it's it's interesting to hear. I'm loving it because when we think of adults in groups, all of us have run groups for so long. Sometimes someone will say, I'm taking the group with me to court today. And literally, they're using what the person they've come to know in the company of others who have supported them to the outside world. And Craig, that's what you're saying your little fellow does. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, Seth, what about the type, sometimes a child's been, and we all have heard of it, they've been so ostracized or bullied by a group. They haven't gotten aggressive. They have withdrawn. Now, why would this child trust going into a group as a therapeutic opportunity? Yes, no, that's a very good question, Suzanne. Well, first of all, what I would say is, you know, when when we run groups, and I'll speak for Craig too, if that's okay. Um, but and it's in our book too. We advocate you prepare the child for coming into the group. And so, yes, that child is going to have anxiety about coming into any group and think, well, I've been bullied or I've had a bad experience in school. Why should I trust in the group? And so there is a preparation, there is a screening process in which, you know, you go over what was the child's experience in group, what can they come to expect, why this group is going to be different. And, you know, that gets to one of the sine qua nons of any group, which is safety and security. And so you're going to have a leader there 
who's going to make sure that there is a safe environment for any kid to come into the group. And you want to convey that to the child. And sometimes you might even say, and look, why don't you try it? You might want to just try it two or three times. We have kids come into groups for trial periods. See mm-hmm. what it's like because that will allay some of their anxiety. They feel like, okay, well, if I don't really like it, I, I don't have to be part of it. The chances are very good they're going to like it and see that it's a different kind of experience. But at least it addresses some of their anxiety about what it was like for them to be in a group. I love that preparation and trial opportunity. Let me ask you this. In the course of the chapters in this book, would you say that a child who has been bullied should be or are you recommending be in a certain group with other children who have also been cyberbullied or bullied? Should children be, should a child who lost a parent be in a group with others who have lost a parent? What is the thinking on that, both for our professional and parent parents out listening to this? Well, I think a general group therapy principle is that groups tend to be structured around having some sort of balance, right, where um, where uh, one person who has who might have one trait in the group um, is met by somebody else who has a different trait. But when we're talking about trauma, when we're talking about loss, when we're talking about some of those more specialized experiences, I think the first thing that people who've experienced um, a loss or a terrible trauma feel is really tremendously isolated, that they're the only one who experiences right. that. And so for those kids and kids who've been bullied, there's real value in being a room full of kids who may have slightly different experiences, but also quite similar ones. And even when we think about loss, you know, there is a difference for a child who has lost a parent, say, to suicide than there is to a child who's lost a parent for medical reasons or in a car accident. And so sometimes with grief groups, um, it's helpful to um, become incredibly homogenous in that way because those experiences, um, I work a lot with um, men who have cancer who are at varying stages of diagnosis. Yes. And those, their children, the experience of watching a parent have a progressive illness is very different than the experience of a child who has a sudden and shocking loss. And so those differences sometimes in a group can reinforce the sense when we're talking about loss or trauma that actually no one here really does understand me and my experience really is unique. That's so valuably said. um, Our our book has a number of of chapters um, dealing with very specific issues, targeted issues, which I think speaks exactly to the point that Craig is saying, that sometimes you need to feel, I need to be in a group where people understand what I've been through. Um, so, for example, our group is, you know, our, our book um, has chapters dealing with, uh, you know, kids in groups, kids who have been exposed to domestic violence or kids who have been traumatized. And then trauma has, you know, a, it's a pretty broad category, and there are different kinds of trauma. There are bere- We have uh, chapters on uh, bereavement groups for children. There's a chapter on um, groups for LGBTQ adolescents. You know, so there are ways in which a lot of these children or adolescents who have felt very isolated and nobody could possibly understand their predicament or situation the group gives them an opportunity to be with, and of course, no situation is exactly the same, but at least there's some commonality, some universality 
so they can yes. experience that kind of cohesion in the group. They're finally in a place where they can find a voice that they feel someone else wants to hear and someone understands them. I'm really loving what you're both saying. Let me ask you, in terms of trauma and bereavement, because people have asked me, for children's groups, do you put siblings together uh, in some of these groups? Uh, I think it would depend. Well, then then you're getting into questions about... um, who comes into the group and age, developmental level, and so mm-hmm. on. I've run, I've run bereavement groups with siblings, but the siblings were close in age to each other. So, okay. Although I do know of people who have run bereavement groups, for example, with much older and much younger kids, and the idea mm-hmm. there was to have the older kids be sort of mentors. I haven't personally done that, but I think you have to take into account where the, the, where the siblings are at developmentally, what their um, relationship is like coming into the group. You know, if there are two kids who fight like cats and dogs at home, I'm not sure I'd put them in the same group. But, um, but if there are two kids who have experienced a loss and basically get along together and are similar developmentally, even chronologically, then I would think about including them in the same group. I think it's, really, it's going to depend. Okay. I think it's important okay. maybe for our listeners to understand the concept in group therapy, um, which is closed versus open groups. And mm-hmm. so a closed group would be a group where you have a set membership and you make decisions at you know, specific points in time about whether to welcome a new member, as opposed to open groups where you know, they might be in community centers or they might be offered in a church setting. Or, you know, and, and the idea with an open group is that whoever comes and shows up is part of the group. So post 9-11, when we were doing group work in a, you know, terrorism mass disaster situation, siblings often were in group. And in fact, getting a younger sibling in group might depend on an older sibling coming and being willing yes. to be there mm-hmm. with those difficult emotions. Similarly, in, um, I, you know, um, work in a cancer center. And, and so the children's groups there often have siblings in them because the family system is dealing with the same experience of a parent with cancer. Right. And so in those situations, it, it makes sense that siblings would be there. And so it depends a little bit whether the group is open or closed and what kinds of issues we're addressing. Okay. Now, I think that it would be very helpful for our listeners to hear. I know the that, and you correct me, part of the philosophy of this very comprehensive book is an integration of, of different treatment approaches. And I wondered if each of you could share what's an example of a technique that you use or have used in a group so that we can really picture what the children are doing in the groups. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, I, uh, for, for several years, ran groups for pretty young siblings of children on the autistic spectrum. And a lot of these kids, they were, these were anywhere from five to, five to seven-year-olds. A lot of them didn't have the language for something like autis- autis- autistic spectrum disorder, they just knew that they had siblings who flapped their hands or didn't have language or behaved in a funny, strange way in public. And so one of the things we did early on was introduce, first of all, about feelings, a, a range of feelings, how to name feelings. Um, I also introduced 
having what it's like to have a sibling with special needs through a whole series of activities. And I didn't start with autism. I started with other illnesses that some of the kids actually knew about from their schools. And then we Mm -hmm. sort of moved into... Um, how to express feelings. We did, I think, Craig, you'll appreciate this, maybe um, we did face painting. I had them put on uh, different kinds of makeup, and mm-hmm. then they could exaggerate their facial expressions when they were angry or sad or surprised. We took pictures, and they could see what the pictures looked like. Um, and it was a way of introducing a whole host of feelings that they had in response to their siblings, um, Gradually, we began to talk about autism and autism spectrum disorder and what that meant. Um, And a lot of them also, I mean, it just opened up a lot of discussion. A lot of them had questions like, well, so it's an illness. Is it contagious? Is it like chickenpox? Like, you can catch chickenpox. Could I catch this? These were all things that I think they probably had harbored these questions and doubts and worries, but they weren't saying anything about them. And so through the different activities that we face painting was one of them, we had all kinds of therapeutic games that we were playing, role plays. It, it really opened up and amplified the opportunity for them to really talk about these things. Wonderful. It's just a great example. And it's a common, I have also heard problems both for the youngster who's on the spectrum looking for a social group, but the idea of the siblings and their unvoiced concerns, this sounds like it was a great group. It it really sounds great. Now, did you have a parallel parent group going? Mm -hmm. Oh, for the siblings? Yes. Yes. I didn't run that. I was in charge of the sibling group. But yes, there was a parallel parent group going. Okay, yeah. which is something I guess that's valuable in a, a lot of different, uh, with a lot of different approaches, because at least then we're informing the parent, giving they're also carrying anguish and often need the group. Yeah, and in fact, um, that's another chapter in the book, um, the the chapter about uh, angry and aggressive kids. They deal a lot with the with the parallel parent group and their mm. work with that. Actually, a number of the chapters talk about the parallel parent group that goes on. But, I, was, but I, I didn't mean to, to just talk about technique because Craig could probably give you fantastic techniques for you. Well, we're, we're just about out of time. Um, uh, what type of group, just give us a hint before we um, stop for break, Craig. What type of group might you be talking about where you would exemplify a technique? We've talked about very specialized groups, so I'd like to talk about a more common group, which is a social skills group, which are offered all over the place for children. Okay, that maybe we'll talk about it right across the age range. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. And today we're speaking about children and adolescents in groups, how they need them generally as well as therapeutically in many cases. Our, our guests are Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson. We're going to come back and talk about social skills groups for children and much more. Stay with us. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
If you are seeking more confidence, it is time to feel good naked. That's the name of the radio show hosted by Laura Redmond. Each week, Laura and her guest experts are here to help you be you. In order to be truly successful and happy, you need self-confidence, self-love, and self-respect. Feel Good Naked Radio will teach you how to embrace these qualities and make your life more fulfilling and meaningful. Listen live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be proud of who you really are from the inside out. Are you a pet parent? If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more, you'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clemens. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front, so you'll be better informed. Tune in Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. We know that you're looking for more. You want a more fulfilling life and don't know how to free yourself from the proverbial rut. Tune in to Wake Up and Listen with co-hosts Don Burnett and Dr. Don. With engaging discussion and some fun, too, Don and Dr. Don will help you bring harmony into your life, improve your relationships, release those fears, and get you unstuck. Wake Up and Listen can be heard live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson, their new book, The Handbook of Child and Adolescent Group Therapy. We were just speaking about specific techniques to give parents and professionals a sense of what actually happens in the group. And Craig, you, you uh, mentioned at the other side of our break, we were going to talk about social skill groups, something many children need. Yes, you know, uh, social skills groups tend to be um, offered quite a lot. And, you know, I think what the term social skills implies is that they're merely teaching children how to interact. And I think what's important to know is that any effective group endeavor, part of what it capitalizes on is the way in which the group environment can both recreate what happens outside of there so that kids take on roles they take uh, um, in their life outside the group. They take them on in-group. They bring behaviors and challenging interactions from life into the group, and they get to be worked on in vivo. And so... Often we, we try to capitalize on that when we're working. And so one social skills group I ran for younger children, part of what we had them do is um, create their own community in the group. So we were using Playmobil toys and, and different figures and blocks and cars, and we asked them to build an imaginary town. And uh, they each had a home in the imaginary town. They developed a character, and I would take a small toy, and I would be the interviewer and go ask each child what it was like in their town. 
And in the course of the metaphor, a lot of the problems the kids were struggling with emerged. So one girl, for example, that I'm thinking of, who had tremendous peer rivalry issues, created a character who she said her neighbors were always trying to compete with her by having a bigger <laughs> and nicer house. That's and great. That's great. Yeah. So part of part of working on that is we engage the other members of the town to, in character, to uh, identify what they heard her saying, to help her practice self-assertion by um, coaching her on how to speak to this neighbor, who was played by my co-leader, about the problems they were having and the feelings behind it. And then to really concretize this for the kids, we had them identify one thought from the play that they wanted to try on more that week in their life outside of the group. So for this particular girl, it was the thought that I'm the one who defines my value. And so we embedded these thoughts by taking uh, a frozen pose in their body while they, while they spoke those out loud. And so it was remarkable because the girl reported when she came back that every time she felt that urge to be competitive with somebody, she would kind of pull her shoulders down, which was part of her sculpture, and she would think to herself, I'm the one who defines my value. And it sort of short-circuited what had become a really habitual way of engaging with other kids that turned other kids off. It's such a wonderful example because we know that play is so invaluable to children. So a structured play that really invites them to talk about and act about the things they're struggling with in the group, it's remarkable. It's a wonderful example. I want to ask you, because I know, Craig, that you've dealt with children in residential settings, and I believe you've dealt with a wide variety of children in different settings, Seth. You know, we we hear the word residential, everybody panics, but we do have children who are very dysregulated. Most have suffered a great deal. Why is it, and what should we know about these children, and why would groups benefit the child who's been considered oppositional, so negative they can't stay in a regular school? What can you tell us about this type of child? Sure. I love that we're talking about kids in residential treatment because so often I feel like they are unseen. Quite literally, they're sent off to live somewhere else, not in their community, while they stabilize. And they can have a really complex constellation of issues. Um, But quite often, these kids have attachment problems. So, you know, if we think about it, there are really two strategies you can employ when your needs aren't getting met. You can either increase your efforts to signal distress and be attended to, or you can swallow those needs and, and they go underground. And so when these basic adaptations to early childhood challenges um, become a template for interacting with other kids, kids who end up in residential treatment often struggle with these patterns. And so they can result in either extreme presentation of feelings and behavior or an emotional shutdown where they deny vulnerability and the need for support. And both of them really emanate from this deeply held belief that no one's going to be able to soothe their distress anyway. And so at base, it's true what you're saying, that most of these kids struggle to self-regulate, meaning they have challenges in, in um, feeling their emotions without it becoming this big storm. And so residential settings, by their very nature, they're group living environments. They're founded on the belief that healing can happen in healthy communities. Um, and so groups in these settings can be an opportunity to experience their peers and themselves differently 
and to talk about the challenges of living in the setting. Because if you imagine, you know, 20 kids living in close quarters who all struggle with their behavior and struggle to self-regulate, right? A lot of pressure happens. A lot of challenges come up. And often the challenges that come up can mirror challenges that they're having in the outside world around making and keeping relationships, dealing with things that they feel like is unfair, um, working with authority figures. And so groups can be a really nice place for kids to not only work through those issues, but I think also within the group living setting, be able to um, work on things that are coming up naturally while having a little bit of time and space to think about those um, and, and what they mean. So it's really a, an opportunity right in the context where the drama is happening and the pain is being displayed to have some input in terms of healing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, I thought Craig did a beautiful job of just really describing how attachment comes into regulation, dysregulation, and then how it factors into the lives of kids who, who do end up in some kind of residential treatment, um, really capturing the vulnerability and the fragility in addition to this template, which pushes people away at the same time that they desperately want a connection. Mm. You know, now sometimes, Seth, people might say, as they have this type of child and the school keeps calling them, shouldn't I find an individual therapist for my child? What prompts someone to think about an individual therapist? Should someone go, we're speaking about group today. How would parents think about treatment in terms of individual, group, the benefits yeah, that's a, that's a very good question because obviously there are benefits to both, um, and one doesn't one does not necessarily preclude the other. There there are plenty of kids who are individual and also in group because mm-hmm. one I think complements the other. And um, I mean, I've certainly worked in programs where we had kids who we saw individually, and there was a very big group component to the program as well. Um, different specialized high school programs and and so on. Um, I think some of it has to do with primarily is the social issue one that could be addressed by a group of people? Does it need one-to-one? Maybe you might work with a child individually and then gradually move them into group. Mm-hmm. Or uh, that, that does happen, and they might not be able to go into a group just yet, but you mm-hmm. want to work them towards that. Um, I think it, a lot of it depends on what's the primary need. What is, is the focus one that's more really more social, interpersonal. I need to be getting along with other kids in a group and learn how to do that and learn how to be with my peers in a group versus it's a, a problem that m- might just be able to be addressed on a one-to-one basis more, more easily. So with some help for attachment from the individual therapist and the bond created with that person, that's often the bridge to attachment with other children, which certainly children, teens, right across the board need and benefit from. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so let me ask either of you um, how, well, let me ask, how would we find your book? Where would we find it? Um, how can professionals um, order it? So the book is available through our publisher, which is Rutledge. It's also available on Amazon and uh, easy to find. Um, and uh, I think probably through most uh, booksellers online as well. 
And what about a website? Do each of you have a website um, or a blog site? I know that you you spoke wonderfully today about so many topics. How could someone find each of you? Uh, Craig, how could our listeners find you? Sure. My website is my name. It's Craig Haynes, C-R-A-I-G-H-A-E-N.com. Okay. How about you, Seth? Uh, sad to say I don't have a website, um, but I'm, I'm in New York City. Um, let's see, I can, I can give a phone number. I can give an email address, too. An email address would be great. So, that great. so email address is, um, so it's Seth, my name, S-E-T-H, Amazon Michael, Aronson, A-R-O-N-S-O-N, and then the initials P, Peter, S, Sam, Y, Yellow, D, David, at gmail.com. And if a parent was looking for a group, what would be the easiest way for them to find it for their child? I, I, one, one way, both of us are, as you mentioned earlier, we're fellows of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, and we co-chair, along with another colleague, the Special Interest Group on Children and Adolescents. If somebody were to contact AGPA, AGPA, that's their website, um, they, they would put them in touch with us, and wherever they are in the country, we could help them find a group for their child or adolescent. Absolutely, agpa.org. And or that, .org, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And frequently, you know, frequently school psychologists and school social workers also have a good sense of who is running groups in their area because groups involve a great number of kids, right? Um, you know, often those uh, people who work in the schools can be a good trusted resource for knowing um, groups that kids have had success with in the past. Okay, I, you know, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank both of you, Dr. Craig Han and Dr. Seth Aronson. The show was just fabulous. I think a lot of information, important information was shared about how we grow and how we heal in groups and how children need those opportunities. Um, so thank you both for coming on. The group is really one the field very much needs. It's comprehensive. It's pretty impressive. Thank you both so much. Thank you so thank much, you. Suzanne, for inviting us. Oh, you're very welcome. I want to thank my listeners. Please remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by this evening. It'll be on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, and under Voice America's um, podcast under Psych Up Live. The links will also be eventually on Craig's site and AGPA's site. Please drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. But most of all, until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 